Hi, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that any time we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. All right, uh, if those of you who don't know me, my name is Vance Furtado, and I am a volunteer teaching pastor here at Resurrection Church. And it's my privilege this morning to lead the part of our worship where we're gonna take a look at God's word. So let's go to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven, verses 36 to 50, as we continue the series that we've been in on the gospel of Luke. And we're gonna call our message this morning, responding to Jesus. Responding to Jesus. Because as we're gonna see in this passage, which focuses primarily upon two people, one of whom we do not even have her name, the other we do have his name, but he probably wishes that his name was not recorded in scripture, but it is. We're gonna focus on how they responded to Jesus and that will also teach us some things how we should respond to Jesus. Before we do that though, let me share with you a story. A woman lived in an isolated country Scottish cottage, heard a loud knock at her door. When she opened the door on the threshold stood a petite middle-aged woman soaked in the current rainstorm. The woman quickly explained, my vehicle broke down do you have an umbrella that I could borrow as I walk home? I will see that it is returned. Well, the homemaker had two umbrellas, one that was virtually brand new, but she decided I'm not gonna take a chance on this lady. So instead of giving her the almost brand new umbrella, she gave her the partially broken, frumpy, leaking a little bit umbrella. And then she quickly shut her door. The next day, a beautiful black sedan pulls up to this woman's cottage. A man comes out holding out to the surprised woman her broken frumpy umbrella saying, Her Majesty the Queen asked me to return the umbrella 
she borrowed from you. <laughs> if only she would have known. Hopefully she would have responded differently, amen? <laughs> Likewise, everyone who encounters Jesus has a choice of how they will respond to him. And as a matter of fact, that is our question that we're gonna be answering in this message. How will we respond to Jesus? Because each and every one of us will have to respond to Jesus one way or the other. One thing that the scripture is absolutely clear is that we will all, all of us, stand before Jesus one day. Romans 14, 11, and 12 says this, it is written, and Paul here is quoting from the book of Isaiah, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And if that wasn't serious enough, here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're all gonna stand before the Lord, without exception. Now, when that day comes and we stand before him, if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we have absolutely nothing to fear. But if we have not responded properly to Jesus at that time, by that time, we're not going to be standing before our Redeemer. We will be standing before our judge. If you don't hear anything else that I'm gonna tell you, please listen to this. We will stand before Jesus without exception. That's why the gospel is so incredibly serious for each and every one of us. Because apart from the righteousness of Christ, we do not have a hope. Now in Luke 7, we're gonna see two very different responses to Jesus. We're going to see, first of all, the unnamed woman, the only title that she is given, and she's given it twice, sinner. Her response to Jesus is gratitude towards Jesus, incredible gratitude. The other person who will have to respond to Jesus, his name is Simon the Pharisee, and Simon, as we're going to see his response is judgment upon Jesus and the woman. So if you're not there already, I invite you to go to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start reading at verse 36. The setting, first of all, is a banquet. All right, so read with me verse 36 as we start. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Let's get the idea of what we would be looking at if we were actually at this banquet. It would be an organized, very grand affair. 
Because if you had a banquet, you needed to issue out the invitations, you needed to get an accurate count as far as how many people were going to come to the banquet, and then you would issue another invitation saying, okay, the banquet is ready. You promised to come, you need to come. When you came to the banquet, now a lot of us have in our minds perhaps uh, Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper with the long tables and Jesus in the middle. Sorry, that's not accurate. Maybe that's how they did banquets back in Italy in da Vinci's time. That's not how they did it in Palestine during the New Testament. You would have tables, low tables, all right? Think about the height of a coffee table and you would have seating ranged around these tables in a U shape with the guests seated outside the table and the middle of the U would where the servers would come in to distribute the food. And everybody would be on what were called reclining couches. Your feet would be away from the table, you'd be propped up on one elbow, and that's how you would eat and that's how you would visit. Furthermore, it wasn't a private affair. Visitors would be able to come into the banquet, not to eat, but simply to quietly and unobtrusively listen to the conversation. So you can you need to imagine this, a big U-shaped table arrangement, the guests around there, Simon the Pharisee is there, Jesus of Nazareth has been invited to this banquet, and the visitors are there. Why would a Pharisee invite Jesus. You see, if you look just a few verses ahead, verse 34, Jesus is being accused of being a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So why would a Pharisee invite Jesus to his home? Well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, the Pharisee. Let's say he was curious about Jesus. But Simon, the Pharisee, is going to be in for a big surprise. Take a look at the next verse. And behold, now, guys, we don't use that word behold very often anymore, do we? But behold basically means pay attention. But behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Imagine this, the banquet is on, people are talking, and suddenly everybody freezes. They look up, they know this woman. Those of you who have been from a small town, does everybody know everybody else's business? <laughs> okay, so everybody knows who this lady is. She comes in, first of all, she would not have been welcomed because of her reputation. It was enough for Jesus to welcome, excuse me, Simon the Pharisee to welcome Jesus, but to welcome a sinner into his home? She would not have been welcome, but it took great courage on her part to come there. 
because she knew the reception she was going to get. Her intention, once she spotted Jesus, she's got this alabaster, probably circular covered with circular round with a neck to it, an alabaster. Alabaster is what you stored very valuable perfume in. She sees Jesus, and her intention is to honor Jesus, how? By pouring this on the Lord's head, just as later the disciple Mary would do shortly before Jesus went to the cross. That ointment was her most prized possession. She wanted to express her gratitude for whatever the Lord had done in her life. And sorry, we don't know what the Lord had done in her life. But her emotions got the better of her. She begins to sob. The Greek term, it's not whimper, whimper. It's (laughs) She begins to sob The best she can do is to get to Jesus' feet. Remember, his feet are away from the banquet table. And by the way, his feet are dirty. We'll find out why later. She gets to his feet. She begins to pour this precious ointment onto his feet. At the same time, her tears are dripping down. She's a mess. She has nothing with which to wipe off her face, anything else to wipe his feet. So she undoes her hair. Her hair falls, get this, a Jewish woman would never undo her hair in public. It would be like partially disrobing in public. She wipes his feet, his dirty feet, with her unbound hair. And the idea in the Greek language She keeps wiping. She keeps kissing his feet. She keeps anointing. It's not a one-time act. As there's this embarrassed silence around the room as to what this woman is doing. You see, guys, she is completely humbling herself before Jesus. And she doesn't care what anybody else in that room thinks. She is focused upon Jesus. And notice, he's receiving this. The only two people that are not embarrassed in the room, one the woman and the other the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why he receives what she's offering? It's because we're told in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's this woman. That describes her to a T. If she could testify for herself, maybe she would say something like what David wrote in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. So that's the woman. Now Simon is watching all of this. Next verse. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Be careful how we judge others. The Lord himself says in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Judge not, and you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Let me tell you guys something. I've been Simon the Pharisee. I've judged harshly with a critical spirit so many times and gotten it repeatedly wrong. I've judged my students. I've judged my coworkers. And you know what? You've judged too. You know why we need to be careful about judging? Because frankly, guys, we don't have the whole story, do we? Let me read to you a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. It says this. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. So when we're tempted to judge like Simon, we need to stop and hold ourselves for a second. Stop for a moment. Here's Simon's thinking. Jesus is obviously not a prophet because by accepting this sinner, he is unclean. Meaning that as soon as the woman touched Jesus, he was ritually unclean. But if you notice, Jesus during his ministry didn't care about things like that. Remember the man who had leprosy who said, Lord, if you can, you can make me clean. Not only did Jesus make him clean, Jesus touched him. Coming in contact with his leprosy. Removing his sin, but also first time in probably years that man had physically been touched. So Jesus is obviously not a prophet because by accepting the sinner, he's unclean, he's contaminated by our sin, Simon was quick to condemn Jesus, but there's a problem. And the problem is, Simon's a sinner too. I like what Warren Wearsby, a Bible teacher, wrote. He said, Simon's real problem was blindness. He could not see himself, the woman, or the Lord Jesus. It was easy for him to say, she's a sinner. But impossible for him to say, I'm a sinner. You see, the woman's sins, and by the way, we don't know what they were. A lot of Bible teachers think that she may have been a prostitute because typically prostitutes were described as sinners. She may have been someone who committed adultery. Some Bible teachers even think that perhaps she was Mary Magdalene, who is mentioned in the next chapter at verse two. All of those are simply guesses. The point is, her sins were pretty obvious 
Okay, we would call them outward actions, sins of the flesh. But Simon's sins, based on what he's thinking, are sins of the heart, spiritual pride. And the problem with sins of the heart is we really do not know just how wicked and how evil our hearts can be. That's why we're told in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Another commentary writes, Simon badly overestimated his own righteousness. Jesus had to show Simon his own sins in order for him to understand his own need for forgiveness. So when we're tempted to be like Simon, look out. Because Jesus is now going to give a story and a rebuke and a judgment upon Simon. Look at the next verse. First of all, let me read the previous verse again, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know, have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, wait a minute. Simon was thinking that in his head, judging Jesus. The problem is, Jesus can read his heart. He knows exactly what this self-righteous, hypocritical man is thinking. That's why he answers and said, Simon's in trouble. Because according to John 2, 24 and 25, it says that Jesus doesn't need anybody's testimony. He knows what's in the heart of every man. So Simon didn't say anything, but Jesus understood exactly what Simon was thinking. So let's keep going. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Which, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Two debtors. A denarii is a day's wage. One coin, a silver coin. 50 denarii, because they worked six-day work weeks. They had the Sabbath off, but the rest of the days they worked. 50 denarii would be two months' wages. 500 denarii would be 20 months' wages. Neither one can pay off the debt. So the moneylender cancels the debts of both. This is a nice moneylender. If you've seen The Godfather, imagine these two are standing before The Godfather. It's okay. Don't worry about it. 
The ESV says he canceled the debt of both. You know what? Another way to translate that word. He forgave the debt of both. That word cancel, forgave, we get our word grace from it. The moneylender extended grace to both of these men because both of them could not pay their debt. Does this sound a little familiar? I hope so. <coughs> and by the way, when Simon is asked the question, who gets more forgiveness, and he gives the right answer, he also is condemning himself, as we're going to see. Because like every other story that Jesus gives, there's a point to the story. There's a point to the parable. So now he's going to deliver his rebuke, and he's going to deliver his praise. So let's keep reading. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? he sees the woman she's right there not really the Pharisees this Pharisee and the other banquet guests have failed to see what this woman's actions were really showing they were so embarrassed and so taken and affronted by what she was doing they failed to see the fact that this was no longer a sinner she was demonstrating by her actions the reality of her repentant life. They were all judging her superficially by her past. That's why Jesus says in another context, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So they weren't really seeing what had happened in her life. Jesus goes on. You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Remember I told you Jesus' feet were dirty? A common courtesy at a banquet was because everybody walked through the dirt and the filth that there would be a basin provided where either a servant or at least someone themselves could wash their own feet. Simon neglected to do that for Jesus because it seems to indicate he despised Jesus. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, kiss on the cheek, a common greeting but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, common olive oil. Pour a little bit on a guest's head, it was considered a common courtesy. That's why in Psalm 23, David writes there, you anoint my head with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are what? They were already forgiven before she ever set foot in that banquet hall. The Greek word there indicates this was taken care of in the past. Whatever encounter the woman had had with Jesus, 
The sin issue had been dealt with before she ever came there, before he ever came to the banquet. And not only that, not only were her sins forgiven, but they remained forgiven. They were forever taken away. Her sins are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. Now, catch this, please. This is very, very important. Her actions underscored that she's been forgiven of her sins. They do not, do not earn her forgiveness. You've got to catch that. God's forgiveness has come to her life. Her life has been changed. And what she is doing is expressing her gratitude for how God has dealt in her life. It's the same thing, guys, later on in the key story of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, which if you remember in that story in Luke 19, Jesus basically invited himself to Zacchaeus' house and the people began grumbling, saying he's gone to build the house of a notorious sinner. And Zacchaeus, indicating also that his heart has changed, stands up, which probably didn't amount to much because Zacchaeus was short, but he stands up and he says, Lord, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will restore four times as much. And in addition to that, I'll give away half my possessions now to the poor. Jesus responds back and says, salvation has come to this man's house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Meaning that Zacchaeus had a change of heart. How he showed everybody his change of heart was his subsequent actions. If someone truly comes to the Lord, they will live differently. Maybe not as a spectacular difference as this woman, but there will be change. Belief plus actions equals real faith. That's why we're told in James, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James 2.26. Okay, now we will be celebrating communion shortly, but before we do that, in conclusion, there's two questions. First question, I'm just gonna present it because we don't know. How did Simon respond to Jesus' rebuke? If you notice, we're not told. The story stops with Jesus saying to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. But what about Simon? It's one of those open endings. It's the same thing like the elder brother. We all remember the prodigal brother, the prodigal son, whom the father forgave and restored. But if you remember, the elder brother was still standing outside the house as the party celebration began. Did he come in? Did he repent of his sin? If God is dealing with us, with you, with me, of our sin, of being harsh, of being judgmental, are we gonna repent? Are we gonna change? How will we respond to Jesus? Are we gonna recognize our need like this woman did? 
and have gratitude for his overwhelming grace? Are we gonna repent of our pride, our judgmental spirit? We all make a choice of how we respond to Jesus. I pray that response will be the right response.